morning. Uh, We're reading from 1 Peter chapter 4, starting at verse 12. And if you're following in a church Bible, it's on page 1220. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household, with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Lord, we do pray that as we come to your word that we would hear from you. Lord, we do thank you for uh, brothers and sisters scattered across Cardiff, across Wales, uh, who will be hearing from you this morning. Lord, we do pray for uh, Jonathan Thomas, for Dave Gobbett, for Ariane and Clinician. Lord, we pray for Andrew Hadley. We pray for Johnny Rain. Lord, would you give them authority, clarity, helpful insights into your word so that your people may live lives of godliness and that they may be sent out into this dark world to proclaim your good news. Lord, we do thank you that we are not alone Here we stand, but we are not alone. Lord, we pray that you would help us now for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen. Um, It's been nine months since Amy and I bought our house in Pentwyn, and it is a bit of a fixer-upper, they say. And in the process of buying this house, uh, many of you told us that since it's a fixer-upper, it will take time. Constantly, I've been told, it will take time. It's a long-term project. It will take time. It's a gradual process. It will take time. And yet, despite all of your helpful words, encouragements, warnings, I have been surprised and found it very strange that it takes a long time to get a house together. Nine months without an oven. Madness. But that's often what happens, isn't it? We're told, we're advised, we're encouraged by one another that something will happen, and we find it strange or surprising. So moving from primary school to high school. We're told it will be a big change. Uh, We'll told the first year of marriage there'll be growing pains. Uh, We'll say uh, you're not going to sleep very much when the first baby arrives. Uh, Transitioning from uh, full-time work into retirement, we're, we're told it will be a big change. And yet, if you're anything like me, despite all that encouragement, all that warning, all that comfort, we find it strange and surprising when these things come our way. And as we travel through 1 Peter, Peter has reminded us time and time again that his readers, his dear friends, that they will experience suffering and they will experience trials. And yet he says here, despite having spoken about it so many times throughout his letter, do not be surprised 
when this fiery ordeal comes upon you. Do not view it as strange. And he, he, he said it so many times, but he brings it up again because he thinks it's worth reminding. And some of you are probably thinking, good grief, we've heard about suffering so much. Do we need to hear it for another Sunday? But, but the nature of suffering and trials is it comes out of the blue. We don't expect it to happen to us, maybe other people, but never us. We're surprised. We ask that question, why? Why is this happening to me? Thankfully for us, there are resources, all the resources that we need in God's Word, the Bible. If you're not a Christian here, this will be helpful for you as you get an insight into the answer to that big question. Why is there suffering in this world? If you're a Christian here this morning, you will be comforted, encouraged, as given a framework, a foundation for what to do whenever you face suffering or someone you love faces suffering. So this morning, I am going to channel my inner Johnny Graham. We are going to do a brief survey of the topic of suffering. And the good thing about God's Word is that suffering is a really complex issue. And the Bible doesn't just give a really nice straightforward answer. It's multi-layered, which is so helpful because it's a complex issue and you need to know the different layers whenever we come to God's Word, whenever we think about suffering and trials. So let's go. What does the Bible teach us about suffering and trials? Let's do this survey together. Here's the first thought on our survey. God did not make the world like this. God did not make the world like this. If you have your Bible open in front of you, you can flick back to Genesis 1 and 2, and you find in the beginning, God made the world absolutely perfect. No sickness, no death, no pain, no mental illness, no breakups, complete perfection. God made the universe perfect with no suffering and no pain. Second stop on our survey Sin has led to suffering in the world. You turn over the page to Genesis 3. We find the reason for suffering and trials in this world. Human beings have rejected God, their faithful creator, and they've chosen to live for themselves, which means there are consequences to our actions. Because of sin, there is judgment upon this world. It's broken. It's fractured. We are under the curse which means there are things like sickness, death, suffering, and persecution in our world. Sin has led to suffering. Now, do not, please do not mishear me. I am not saying this morning, if you are suffering, it's because you have sinned. That, that's karma. That's not Christianity. But, but what I'm saying is you can trace the roots of all human suffering back to when our first ancestors rebelled against God. The ripple effects shake our entire reality. Third stop, God is sovereign over suffering. God is sovereign over suffering. I've used the word suffer, uh, sovereign here, which might be a new word to some of us. Sovereign means that God is in control over all things. He's the great stage master pulling the strings behind the scenes. He's working behind the scenes. He doesn't look down on earth and sees all the suffering, all the tragedy, all the evil, and he's not thinking, oh my goodness, how on earth am I going to fix all this? He's not reacting and responding. No, he's sovereign. He's in control of all things. He sees the end from the beginning. Let me give you an example of this from the Bible. Uh, again, in Genesis, we find the story of a man named Joseph. 
He's the favorite son of his dad. His brothers were so livid, so jealous of him that they wanted to kill him. And rather than killing him, they sold him into slavery. He goes down to Egypt. He lives a life there. He ascends, climbs the ladder, and then he gets unfairly chucked into jail. He then rises through the ladder again and escapes prison through wise management and preparation of a famine, and he becomes the prime minister of Egypt. Joseph then, fortunately, uh, meets his brothers years later, and his brothers are terrified that he's going to exact revenge upon them for the evil that they did. And Joseph says, no, God was sovereign. Uh, Genesis 50, verse 20. These, These are Joseph's words. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph looks back over all the evil, all the hardship that he has faced, and he says God was in control of every single thing that happened on this stage. Nothing happened in his life by chance. To use the language of our, our, of our passage this morning, Joseph suffered according to God's will, committed himself to his creator, and he did good. So the evil, the wrong that the brothers did to Joseph was evil. It was wrong. Yet God was working behind the scenes. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. It wasn't that God just suddenly reacted and started working. He was working in and through all things. His good purposes cannot be thwarted by evil. His good purposes for your life cannot be thwarted by evil. Next up on our survey of suffering, God hates suffering. He hates it. We find this whenever Jesus was on earth. He spent his earthly ministry fighting against human suffering. And he did this primarily by preaching the gospel, the need for forgiveness of sins. For the greatest suffering is eternal suffering. So he proclaims the good news that sins can be forgiven. But he also went around healing people of their illnesses and struggles, their suffering. Why does Jesus do this? He hates suffering because he did not design the world to be like this. And if you're not sure about this, let me take you to one of the most striking images in the Bible. Uh, John chapter 11, verse 35. We find Jesus here at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, weeping. Jesus wept. The God of all creation, who knows all things, standing beside the tomb of his best friend, weeping, which means he is beside you when you weep, when you lose people that you love. He weeps with you in your suffering. Why? Because Jesus did not design the world to be like this. Last stop on our brief survey. Suffering will end. This is incredible hope, isn't it? It's not just that suffering will end once you die and you're in the grave. That's the end of suffering. No, there is a sell-by date to all pain and suffering. There'll be no more heartache. There'll be no more illness. Tears will flow no more. We find in Revelation 21, I told you it was a brief survey of the Bible, Revelation 21.4, God himself says that he will heal and make all things new. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That is a better story than the culture has to offer us whenever it comes to suffering. 
It will end, and God will make all things new. So what do you say? We've done this brief survey. We've thrown absolutely whizzed through it all. What is the point? So what? Why does this matter? Well, hopefully, hopefully you can just take a moment and wonder and worship that God is so, so much bigger, so much more powerful, so much more wise than anything you could ever imagine. You can trust him because he sees the end from the beginning. He knows all things. He's not just thinking, oh, that'll sort itself out. He knows everything that is going on in your life and he is in control of it. He cares for you so deeply. The application may simply be just to file this away for when suffering comes or whenever you meet someone who is suffering. You can sort of work through that brief survey and think this person needs to hear that God is in control in their pain that there's purpose in their pain. God is doing something. It might be simply just to remember that one day suffering will end. That might be what someone needs to hear. Now now that we've done that brief survey, given a wee bit of a framework, an answer to the problem of pain in this world, let's now consider how we're to respond whenever we face suffering and trials. How are we to respond to suffering and trials? This is our second point and we're only having two points, I should have said. Uh, how, are we, how are we to respond to suffering and trials? Two things we get from these verses in First Peter. We're to rejoice and we're to remember. To rejoice and to remember. Now, initially, whenever we hear this, whenever we read verse 13 and see, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. It sounds so strange, doesn't it? Because whenever we hear the word rejoice, celebrate, be glad, we think about something like this potentially. I hope it comes up. Rejoice. Great, amazing ice cream. That is something to rejoice about, to be happy about. No one celebrates. No one's glad whenever this happens. Ice cream on the, gl- on the ground, gutted, miserable. It seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Joyful suffering just doesn't seem to make sense, does it? It's kind of like someone saying, delicious vegetables, ugh. It's like someone saying, boring youth weekend away. It just doesn't make sense, does it? It just seems wrong, doesn't it, to put these two words together, joyful and suffering, rejoicing in your suffering. So why does Peter encourage these readers, you and me today, to rejoice, to respond to suffering and hardship with joy? Well, Christians are to look at Jesus and see that suffering leads to glory. Suffering leads to glory. I know in our brief survey, we thought about all suffering. I keep whacking this, don't I? Um, I I talked about all suffering, but Peter narrows our focus in here to talk about suffering and trials that we face for being a follower of Jesus. He, He narrows our focus. He says that if you are a Christian, you will face particular challenges for being a follower of Jesus. He says, doesn't he, being insulted, hated, despised for being a Christian. He says, you're not to suffer for being an evildoer. We read that in verse 15, don't we? Peter tells us, as Jesus himself has said, we're to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Which means there will be job opportunities that you will miss out on if you're a Christian. There will be people in your life who will not like you if you're a follower of his There will be invitations to parties that you will not get if you are Jesus' followers. And Jesus himself taught us that the pathway to glory is the narrow, hard road. 
Part of being Jesus means we will share in his sufferings. We live in a world, don't we, where we love to customize things. We go to the coffee shops and we say, hold the cream, I want decaf, I want a half shot. We, we go onto our games consoles and we can customize our avatars. We can change the clothing type, the hairstyle, the accessories. And we can sort of import that idea of customizing things into our Christian faith, can't we? I'll have Jesus. I'll take his benefits. Give me heaven. Who, wanted to be, who would not want to go to heaven, right? But hold on the sufferings. Hold the persecutions. Deny self? No, thank you. Take up cross, follow him. No, not for me. Friends, if you want Jesus without his sufferings, you do not want Jesus. That's a hard word, but if you do not want Jesus' sufferings, you do not want Jesus. That is not what Christianity has ever been about. And in case you hear that and you think to yourself, that just seems like a whole lot of loss and a whole lot of pain, let's consider what can be gained. Look down, verse 13. So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Glory is such a helpful word here. It captures something so, so much bigger than day-to-day enjoyment. We thought about it in chapter 1, didn't we? All those weeks ago. An inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The sufferings we face now for Jesus' sake remind us that there's something so much better in the fleeting praise of this world. You can rejoice in your sufferings, for sufferings are the pathway to glory. The next reason you can rejoice in the midst of your suffering is you bear Christ's name. Again, whenever we read uh, verse 16, Peter recognizes, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. That's a natural response, isn't it? Whenever someone makes fun of you for being a Christian, you feel ashamed. You want to withdraw. You want to curl up in a ball into the fetal position and die. You're just so embarrassed. You're silent. Peter says, no, no, no. Don't do that. Instead, rejoice. Be glad in that moment. And you're probably sitting there thinking, Peter, that is so easy for you to say, you big weirdo. What are you talking about? Well, Peter's not just writing this as a bit of advice. He lived this out. Flicking your Bible, we're doing a lot of flicking, aren't we? Acts chapter 5, verse 40 to 42. This is Peter here. They called the apostles, Peter's amongst them, in and had them flogged. (laughs) Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin. This is the mental bit. Rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Can you just imagine that? Just picture you have been flogged, whipped on your back. It is bleeding. It is cut up. And your response to that agonizing pain is to celebrate. Yes, can you believe it? Look at these wounds, incredible, blood dripping everywhere. Rather than shrink back and withdraw, they rejoiced. They kept doing it. They considered it an honor to bear Christ's reproach. Why on earth would they do this? Why would they have this totally different perspective to celebrate when really you should be looking for a doctor and hiding? 
Well, it's because of everything we've seen in this letter, isn't it? They were chosen before the foundation of the world to bear Christ's name. They were set apart to be wholly distinct from the world. Of course, they would not be accepted by them. They were shown incredible mercy by the God that they had rejected. They are God's special possession. You are God's special possession. Friends, we have so many reasons to rejoice. And primarily, it is the gospel. How incredible is it that the creator of the universe would hang on a cross for us? We're going to sing this song as we close, because even as I'm saying it, I do not think I would be bouncing if I get whipped on the back. We're going to sing, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. Oh, that is a prayer we need to pray. Because I don't know how many of us might, well, I don't know how quick I would be to be bouncing and celebrating for being whipped for Jesus. That's a prayer for us to pray. And as we suffer, as we are persecuted, we are sent out to continue proclaiming that Jesus is worth it. The worst you can do to us only hastens us home quicker. Next thing to do whenever we suffer, we've thought about rejoicing. We need to remember. We need to remember. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You are to remember in your sufferings that you are blessed. Again, whenever we hear that, it seems mad, doesn't it? For whenever we hear the word blessing, we think of the positive addition of things, gaining things, rather than gaining negative things. Blessing means gaining friends and followers rather than losing them. And we can so easily think like this, can't we? If we are losing the popularity contest, if people do not agree with us, then we must be doing something wrong. But Peter's logic here, it's not just Peter thinking this. He has picked this up from Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount. He sort of paraphrased it. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That is the Lord Jesus who spoke the world into existence. If he says you are blessed when people persecute you, friends, you are blessed. There's no doubt about that. Peter says that whenever the world slanders you, tells you that you're nothing, that this Christianity thing is a waste of time, God is going to bless you in a special way. But so often in those moments when you're getting slandered, when you're feeling that heat, it feels like God has abandoned you, doesn't it? Peter says he has not abandoned you. He's blessing you. He will be with you in a special way by his Spirit. You see that, don't we? For the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you, in verse 14. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Peter picks up this language from the Old Testament found in Numbers and Isaiah. The Holy Spirit that guided the nation of Israel through the wilderness, suffering so often feels like a wilderness, doesn't it? is the same Spirit who is with you now in your pain. The Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus' life and ministry, raised him from the dead, rests upon you when you suffer. The Spirit of glory will get you to glory, my friends. Now, now in the moment, you may not feel that aware of God's presence with you. But, but picture with me, if you were uh, sick in a hospital and you were unconscious you wouldn't be aware of your loved one sitting beside you, holding your hand. 
Just because you're not aware of it doesn't mean it's not true. Friends, whenever you're suffering, whenever you're finding life hard, it's the testimony of so many Christians, isn't it? That when life is hardest, God is especially near. Friends, this is why we need a community. We need to hear these stories of God being with us in the darkest and the hardest moments of our life. Next thing we need to remember is God's purposes in suffering. Verses 17 and 18 are quite tricky, aren't they? For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter again, as he always does, is taking up Old Testament imagery from Malachi. Time again in the Old Testament, we see that God begins his judgment with his people before moving out into the world. Here's what a commentator said about this. God will begin the process of judging humanity with his own people to see which are truly his own. Now, we need to be careful here because we hear this idea of God judging us, refining us, and we feel a bit uncomfortable. But we need to remember what we did in Hebrews, didn't we? When we read those warnings, it was about disturbing the comfortable and comforting the disturbed. Whenever God brings trials and hardship into our lives, the purpose is to refine us, to wean us off the things of this world, to help us hold more closely and more dearly to our Lord Jesus. His purposes are that we may be saved, not be destroyed. I think whenever we uh, read that it is hard for the righteous to be saved, I think the better translation is, with difficulty, the righteous are saved, which makes a wee bit more sense, doesn't it? Whenever we are suffering, it feels so hard, it feels so difficult, but it's, we persevere through that suffering, don't we? That's what it means, to keep going with difficulty, reaching the end. The reality is when life is hard, God is working in us. He is growing us in these situations. Some of our teenage boys have started to learn this concept as they start going to the gym. What they're finding is that the way to get stronger is that they lift heavy things. And as they lift these heavy things, their bodies, their muscles are broken down. They ache, they're in pain, they're suffering. But they find that in that pain, in that suffering, they're growing. They're being made stronger. They are strengthened. Whenever we think about this refining that God is doing, it has a great and glorious purpose in growing you, in making you stronger. In the midst of these trials and this hardship, he is doing something in it, which still sounds really hard for us to hear, doesn't it? Which is why we need to remember God's care as we close. Remember God's care. Verse 19 So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Peter reminds us that the God we serve is the one who created us. He knows you. He knows what you can bear. He knows your weak frame. He knows that you're dust. He knows what you can handle. And he's faithful. He's not going to abandon you. He's called you to be his. You're his special possession. He is faithful. He will never let you go. How does he know our weak frame? He became one of us. He walked this earth. Remember your faithful creator. But also remember that he has made you into a new creation. Friends, 
We saw that all the way back in chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. You are a new creation if you're a Christian, which means God is working his purposes to make you more and more like the Lord Jesus. He doesn't want to leave you where you are. He is making you into something good and glorious, the image of his son. His care for you this morning is greater than you could possibly imagine. How can we know that? He came to this earth. He went to Calvary's cross. He was condemned like a thief, a criminal, to death. How can you be sure of God's great care for you as you experience pain, heartache, loss, suffering, slander this morning. Look at Calvary, my friends. Consider the power of the cross. His love for you, his care for you knows no limits. For they stretched out on that cross, the arms that flung stars into space, hanging on a cross for you. How can you know that God is in control, loves you? Because in the greatest moment of unjust suffering in the history of the world, Jesus stayed there for your sake so that you can trust him no matter what life throws at you. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we do marvel at your great love for us. Lord, we do pray as we respond that we would sing that song as a prayer that you would help us believe it, believe it and live it, that knowing you, there is no greater thing. Spirit of glory, would you help us do that for our everlasting joy and for the sake of the lost people in our community. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.